Welcome to this week's edition of the Business of Innovation podcast. I am Jack Hirschman. In the world of IT, the big ideas become about allowing anyone to run their own state-of-the-art IT infrastructure just about anywhere. And that's without the need for huge data centers that often use enough electricity to power small towns. Now, of course, this was once the exclusive reserve of the world's largest internet companies, and this is no longer the case. It's meant that the barrier to entry has dropped significantly for businesses of all sizes who can get access to great services even if they're operating out of their mum's basement. Businesses now have actually emerged to provide these needs accordingly. And the problem with this has been that it's left traditional IT providers like Microsoft, Oracle, HP and IBM, the likes of which have traditionally sold a very different kind of technology meant to be run across individual machines rather than thousands of machines, a very new challenge. Running their technology across thousands of machines is too difficult as it stands and quite expensive too. So a catch-22 has emerged for many of these businesses. If they don't change now, they risk fading away. But if they go too far in the other direction, they'll cannibalize their own businesses. Many of these questions hang over IBM. And it seems that like Microsoft, in the same way that they competed with Google and Amazon with their Azure cloud computing services, IBM has done much of the same through acquisitions. It acquired a business called Softlayer a few years back to help bolster its future. And Peter Stianovich interviewed the CTO, Mark Jones to find out a little bit more. So could you just kind of contextualize your role at Softlayer and your remit? Absolutely. So I'm the CTO at Softlayer and uh, I get to wear a number of hats. So first and foremost, I focus on architecture and product development um, for our global cloud infrastructure. Yeah. And so that's, I get to work with architects on designing what we do next and the product teams on defining it and, and then working with the engineering teams on implementation. So that's, I always consider that my day job. And then um, I also do evangelism. So much like being here at Web Summit, it's talking at conferences, uh, meeting with customers, meeting with uh, startups that are in our startup program. Um, so it's, it's spreading the word for what we do at Softlayer, but trying to transition more into thought leadership as well. Interesting. That's quite rare, actually. It's, How do you find that balance, then, between sort of back-office work and front-of-house face of the company? It's challenging um, to find the time for all of it. Sure. Um, I, I have a passion for both, and uh, I never thought I would. I'm very much an introvert, and so I always thought, I never thought about being that that public persona, if you will. Yeah. Um, but I try to find a good balance. And a bit part of it is having a very strong team that can help focus on the architecture and the product when I'm away. Yeah. Um, and then um, the other part of it is just, uh, again, because I like it so much, Absolutely. I make time to get out and, and do it. So what are the sort of main areas of architecture that you're looking at in trying to build up software and make sure that you're staying relevant? So we've uh, we were acquired by IBM two years ago, and prior to that, we were really having to compete on a, a much broader scale. With that acquisition, because IBM has a, a very broad portfolio, it enabled us to really fine-tune to just compute, network, storage, and identity and security. So we view that as our four key product pillars. So that's our primary area of focus, and enhancing what we have, and then with an eye to the future about what we do next, to focus really just on that infrastructure layer um, to, to support our customers, but also to, to support IBM as the cloud foundation for the company. Do you think that acquisition has been a good uh, stepping stone for the company and its trajectory? Or it has, it, has it given challenges to what you want to do? It's been really good. Um, I went through a lot of acquisitions back in the first dot-com uh, bubble to bust, and I saw a lot of bad acquisitions happen, yeah. both on being on the acquiree and on the acquirer side. This one, given the size of it, I think a lot of people had concerns, but it's actually gone very well. Mm -hmm. um, they closed the deal, and then they left us alone to kind of do what we've always done, 
and that we had access to more resources, more money, more people, and that allowed us to accelerate our growth. Um, our data center footprint went from 13 data centers to over 25 now in two years. And, and then we have access to people in IBM Research and, and other teams that have really strong technical knowledge in these areas. So it's helped us fine-tune quite a bit. With that growth and with that sort of network growth as well, how have you maintained your kind of culture of starting up and innovating and, and that nimbleness? It's challenging. It really is. Um, the, obviously, the more you grow, the more expectations you have on you. And, uh, and particularly in very large companies, you have a lot of customers. Sure. And they all, they all want to be that, that number one customer. So it's battling against priorities. So for us, it's really been on working with everybody, but making sure that we own and drive our product roadmap, our priorities, and, and try to keep a focus on it. Um, and, and as I mentioned earlier, IBM did a great job of just kind of saying, software, you know, we acquired you for a reason. Keep doing that. Yeah. And I think because they did that, that's allowed us to maintain an identity and a culture. And I think it really, it's resonated really well with the employees to still um, have a tremendous pride in, in, in software. We, we call them slayers. And so everybody still really uh, supports that and is Absolutely. passionate about it. Absolutely. And you've, on that front of house side too, how do you engage people with your vision and, and your mission? Um, even people that maybe aren't in the same area or field of you? That's a good question. Um, so internally, um, we do a lot of uh, just everything from brown bag lunches to um, we're not quite on the webinars yet, but a lot of just a lot of producing a lot of material mm-hmm. and talking about where we want to go. Um, it's a little bit easier inside the company because they were more aligned. Sure. Externally, um, we've built out a number of evangelism teams. So we have a, a very specific program that targets startups that talks about who we are, what we do and gives them an ability to uh, take advantage of not just our platform from a technology perspective, mm-hmm. but to get access to our talent. So whether that's uh, from a mentoring standpoint. So we have people that cover a number of uh, technical areas, from mm-hmm. big data to distributed systems, and they can work with them. And so that's really targeting kind of the startup scene. Yeah. And, um, and then beyond that, we have a team that's more focused on product evangelism. Sure. Everything from how to consume our APIs to how to, uh, what are our product portfolio? Yeah. And then how to best apply that to their needs. So it's trying to be much more um, evangelical about what we do, how we do it, and, and not, not from a sales pressure standpoint. It's really just more about an education standpoint. Um, do you think, therefore, that the, one of the main issues facing startups is the access to a talent pool? I think so. I think that... Well, I think startups have access to a pretty large talent pool, and I think the difference can be how well-funded a startup is. So, obviously, a lot of startups don't have significant funding. You know, we hear about the ones that have a lot of funding, but most don't. And so when you're that initial startup and, and you're bootstrapping, or maybe you have a small seed or angel round, mm-hmm. you, you don't have access to the people. You, and then for something like software with our, our compute platform, um, it could be expensive. So having a program that gives you credits, that gives you access to talent that you may not otherwise have access to without having to pay a lot of money for it, it, it goes a long way with those startups. It's about establishing goodwill with yeah. them and, and trying to help foster their growth. You know, Software was founded in two, 2005 as a startup, so we've always had a passion for startups because it's really in our blood. 
So we like to give back and, and work with these companies. And, and now you're more of a scale up, let's say. <laughs> How have your experiences with trying to gain talent been? What, what have you found as a barrier nowadays as more and more people want to get into the startup world? Uh, barriers for us specifically? Yeah, so for us it's challenging because we are that bigger company now. And the bigger you get, it becomes harder at times to attract that, that core talent that you want, that core talent that is very passionate about what they do. And a lot of times, you know, we end up competing with the startups to attract that talent. Um, you know, the advantage that we have, um, not all the time, but a lot of times is the scale at which we work. So attracting talent that has a passion for extremely large data sets, or, or in our case, um, you know, we do a lot with open source. We do a lot with OpenStack. Yeah. And when we can go to these um, to this talent and say, you can work on, say, OpenStack, but oh, by the way, we have over 25 data centers globally, and we have a private global backbone network that connects everything. Very few people can put that kind of scale out there. And so that, that helps us attract right. talent. And that idea of open source is quite, you know, relatively modern and a lot of companies now realize that if they don't go open source, they're not in the market anymore. What facilitated that change of opening the books out and letting external candidates kind of filter with your systems? Um, I think it's been, you know, it's been an evolution for us for a while. Um, a, a lot of, um, I think a lot of startups obviously really openly embrace open source and, and are actively contributing to it as well as consumers of it. Um, We've seen a slower adoption on the enterprise side, but now it's become very commonplace. Okay. And, and the way we look at it, you know, very similar to what we do with the startups is we are consumers of open source, but we also want to be able to contribute back. And with that, it helps us build a community mm -hmm. that's a global community, and, but it also helps us you know, accelerate growth because you have a, a global community that's working on a project as opposed to if you were just to staff, say, four people on it. Um, and then it, it broadens the talent pool that you can draw from. So when you're proprietary, you pretty much have to train new people as they come in on what your technology is. Uh, but when it's, when it's open, then it's a much broader talent pool. And it, and it can be a global talent pool that you draw from. And I think that in our case, it's really more about execution, right? We, we can differentiate ourselves in, in certain core product or feature sets. Yep. But for us, it's about operational excellence. And if we can compete and, and, and really prove ourselves operationally, then we can still, we can still win uh, our customers. Has the issue of privacy kind of come up as well with that, or has that been something that you've been quite comfortable with? Um, I think we've been very comfortable with it. I think that we, we definitely have that conversation a lot with our customers. Um, I, I would say it still happens quite a bit. Um, you know, for the longest time, security was always the, the number one barrier to companies adopting cloud or moving to cloud. We still have that conversation with, I would say, every customer. But when, when we're able to have that conversation and talk through you know, what we have in place for the core of our systems and the additional capabilities that are at their disposal mm. that they can do on their own to layer on top of that, more and more companies kind of, well, nobody should ever just get totally comfortable with it. You always need to be on guard with it, but it's, it's becoming a normal course of operations now. And you mentioned cloud just then again. I mean, there's so many trends nowadays that one can pick up on. How does the CTO align themselves or their company with the right trends to make sure that the CEO or you know, their sort of colleagues are taking the company in the right direction? How do you kind of make that 
conversation happen? Um, it's, it's challenging at times. Um, and a, a lot for us, what we've seen is this transition from CIO's office or, or a trend towards CTO, but historically it's been the CIO's office that's always kind of been you know, the, the owner of IT, if you will, within a company. And since the, the broad growth of cloud, you see more of the lines of business. And it's typically because IT is not moving fast enough, and they want to move. They want the agility. They want everything that cloud promises. Yeah. But the but the CIO or the IT office can't deliver that. And but what we're seeing now is more and more a conversation of the CIO's office with the broader business, with the lines of business, because they know that they have to transform what they do to meet the needs of their customers. Right. Those are their internal customers. So we see more dialogue happening there, and that alignment happens from the CIO across. We see a trend now to where more of a CTO where, you know, historically the CTO was just kind of the, the pure technical, kind of that, you know, the geek factor, just, just go work on the technical problems. And that CTO role has really evolved now where a lot of times, it, much like myself, it could encompass product. It could encompass architecture. And, and that expands out to, in some cases, more of a CIO type of role. But getting, getting alignment across the leadership team, as you mentioned, is still, it can be challenging at times but it's probably one of the most important things that a company can do. Do you think that evolution of the CTO role is only happening in certain sectors, or is it happening across the, the tech hemisphere? Probably certain sectors right now. I think a lot of the large, at least from, from what I've seen, the experiences that we have, a lot of the large enterprises still focus more on that traditional CIO role that drive a lot of the, you know, what we label that IT um, part of it. Um, but I think a lot of the, you know, startup-wise, it's very much the CTO role. Very, very rarely do you see a CIO role in a startup. It's really the CTO. And the CTO a lot of times will own engineering. They'll own product. They'll even own operations at times. Um, but now you're starting to see that role make its way into the enterprise a little bit more than you have in the past. And is that how you've seen your role change as well? It is, yeah. I, um, you know, my background was always as a, as a sysadmin and then a software engineer and then kind of up through the ranks with that. Um, but I've always aligned myself more on the technology side. And, and I would say within the last probably six to eight years, I kind of grew into having a passion for product and user experience and what that meant. Um, so personally, I've seen that evolution. And, and it really, and from my standpoint, it seems like it mirrors what, what's happened in the, in the technology industry. And with, on that basis of experience, it's such a big deal now. A brand has to make sure that the customer experience is the best it can be. How do you make sure that any customer anywhere has the same user experience? Um, a lot of testing. A lot of so, um, you know, with us being globally distributed, um, we have 13 data centers outside of the United States, sure. but our, our office is in Dallas, Texas. So, you know, with a, a large percentage of our customer base being international, it's important for us to understand what that looks like. Mm -hmm. So we have distributed teams around the globe um, that constantly use our systems. Um, so that we're, we're able to, to measure, you know, everything from response times to, um, to load times through our own channels. And then, you know, the, the multitude of, of tooling that exists today and applications and services that help you monitor that, yeah. um, it's, it's really become kind of the norm of what, what you need to have in place to measure a user experience. So how important do you think the analytics of a user experience is to a company nowadays? I think it's incredibly important. And it's, it's one that I would say we've, we've really just started to, to tap into, to really leverage that as a way to make decisions and drive future, um, future decisions. 
And for me, it's actually one of the most exciting areas that I see developing in cloud. The, the number of startups that are, are basing themselves on big data, yep. on analytics, machine learning, um, that to me has the ability to change the game for small companies that traditionally can't afford to have access to that, that type of IP. Now it's available as an API, Absolutely. and you pay by the drink. And that can help you make dramatic changes to your company. It can help you change your applications and services in a way that just a couple of years ago wasn't possible. So it's, it's pretty exciting. So what definitive changes for startup would that, accept, would that allow? It, it allows you to get access to, um, uh, I mentioned IP, but having access to, let's say, machine learning, um, being able to, to tap into that for your website, for your application, um, for any of your services to, to gain insights. And you're able to gain those insights without having to hire PhDs, without having to hire data scientists. You're able to take advantage of other startups where that's their sole focus is to do that. And then you as a startup, you get to focus on what you want to take to market, but you get to leverage this, this broad set of tooling now to help you do your job. And so it's really about more efficiencies, time to market, agility, that you as a startup can, can take advantage of. And I'm imagining, last question, I think, I'm imagining that this is something that you'd want to think about too. So how do you see your role as CTO or the wider CTO role changing next year or five years' time? It becomes more and more challenging to stay on top of the evolution of the industry. Yeah. Um, and I say that because it's happening so fast. You know, the, as we've talked about here, the number of startups that are uh, coming into the industry and, and really dramatically changing the way that you do business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, everything from development, you know, the whole development pipeline now is so different than it was five or ten years ago on how quickly you can develop code where before it was weeks or months. Now it's, you know, companies are doing 10 to 20 or 30 data uh, uh, code pushes a day. Yeah. Um, so that's changing rapidly. Um, the analytics we talked about. What's out there and how can I take advantage of it? And then just the evolution of cloud and, and, and putting all of your workloads into the cloud space. It's changing fast, and the catalog grows and grows every year. So staying on top of it is incredibly challenging. Mark, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's brilliant. Now, that's all we've got time for this week, so I'd like to thank you very much for listening. And if you can't wait until next week's episode, I implore you to head over to hottopics.ht for more content just like this. Thanks very much. Goodbye.